You are listening to List It, the show where me and a guest rank and list things in pop culture. And very excited to be back with my first guest of 2021, uh, a year that uh, I think, you know, we're off to a little bit. <laughs> we're talking before we're off to a little bit of Rocky start, but I'm still very optimistic about. And hopefully today's episode will uh, equip you to have a really inspired year because we're Liz, my guest today is one of my good friends, Liz Fork and Bohannon. I want to tell you about a lot of things she has going on. But first, the, the topic we're talking about, uh, Liz is talking about some of her favorite books of 2020. I'm talking about some some of my favorite all-time inspirational books. Um, but I feel like one of the through lines in our list is not just some of our favorite recent books, but there are books that will kind of help you level up in different areas. Um, so, uh, and Liz is someone who knows a lot about leveling up. She's the author of the book, Beginner's Pluck, Build Your Life, Purpose, and Impact. She's also the founder of an incredible... Uh, socially impactful company, Seiko Designs. She's a sought-after speaker, and she hosts an, an awesome podcast with one of the greatest podcast titles ever, Plucking Up. <laughs> I, I love saying that. Liz, welcome to List It. Thank you so much, Jesse. I'm so excited to be here. Yeah, I'm, I'm stoked to have you. Okay, so it's been a while since we when, since we chatted. Um, you know, before we we jump into you know the books in particular, you know, I, I I want you to break down each one of them for me. But you know, number five on my list, and 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 I'm going to go ahead and jump right to it is Beginner's Pluck because I've always been a big fan of you and Seiko. And this book not only like has really interesting kind of backstory about you personally, but also it's really practical. It's like 14 steps, right? That that you kind of yeah. uh, uh, equip the, the listener list. Okay, give me the elevator pitch for, for Beginner's Pluck. Oh, you know, you'd think I'd have this down by now. So Beginner's Pluck is like, I would describe it as um, part memoir, part kind of motivational. I say self-help. I'm really hesitant to say that because I also recognize that it it's kind of an anti-self-help book in some yeah. ways. Um, the whole concept of the book is that there are things that you will do natural mindsets and mentalities that you have when you are a true beginner, when you are incompetent, when you are consciously incompetent, whatever that looks like for you and whatever kind of journey you are in, that you do more naturally that as a society, I think we've um, grown to believe are things that hinder you from success and that you need to get over and move through. My hypothesis is that those things actually can be used to your advantage and they can actually make you a more creative and innovative and curious um, leader, person, human that's actually more equipped to build a life of purpose and passion and impact. And so I share my story primarily of starting my company, Seiko, um, and kind of just like the behind the scenes. I'm a really big fan um, of just like the transparency. You know, we have so many people that are quote unquote successful, um, that have a really nice kind of PR affide story about how they got there and really sharing the more kind of gritty behind the scenes stories of failures. My podcast that you mentioned called plucking up, it's literally the whole point of the podcast is I invite these like wildly successful people onto the show, you know, like Liz Gilbert and, uh, Janice Bryant Howard, who's like the first black female billionaire. Um, and the point is for them not to kind of share their highlight reel, but like take us to the behind the scenes moment of like, tell yeah. us 
tell us when it was dark. Like, tell us when you were trying and failing and when people weren't taking you up on your idea and really kind of de-shaming the idea of failure, embracing our incompetence. Um, And so kind of channeling our inner beginner or as I like to call your beginner's pluck. So that's kind of the concept of the book. Well, and and I'm such a big fan of the book because I have and and some of the books uh, you know we'll talk about today. I'll, I'll kind of break down more of, of kind of my philosophy when it comes to the quote unquote kind of self help because I have especially coming from um, you know a lot of experience with reviewing and reading a lot of kind of self helpy books a lot kind of in the, coming from like the faith world mm-hmm. I have like a real skepticism towards mm-hmm. a lot of them because mm-hmm. a lot of them you feel like are kind of reverse engineered from like a title or were adapted from like a sermon or something you know like yeah. hey can we make this the the best life, you know, purpose you can have right now. But what I love about your book is it not only deliver, like, I feel like what makes really good, like kind of self-helpy books, I don't even want to classify your self-help because a lot, I feel like it's a lot more than that, but I feel like it's two things. One is like genuinely insightful, relatable stories, which obviously you have. And, but it also has like practical takeaways that are actually usable, you know, and not just platitudes because I feel like platitudes are one thing that not just for kind of inspirational books, but really uh, any book that really challenges you. One of the things is they, they mix kind of memorable Mm. prose without veering into reading greeting cards, you know? And I feel like beginners pluck does such a good job of that. It's really one of my goals in the book was like to be a subtle, (laughs) a subtle massacre of the self-help platitudes that have dominated the last decade of kind of that space. Because I I think a lot of them, they're, I think they're well-intended, but they miss the mark. And I've actually seen in my actual life within myself. And then now that I kind of am in this space where I'm coaching and walking alongside thousands of other entrepreneurs who, you know, are starting and running their own businesses. I'm seeing in real time how these platitudes, not only are they not really helpful, they're they're actually creating a narrative and a mindset that is really unhelpful. Yeah. So things like, you know, like dream big is one that I'm like, no, mm -mm, that's not going to work and find your passion. And I'm very quick to say like, doesn't work like that. You're never going to find it. And one of my favorites is like, no, 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 you're so special. Like you just have to believe that you're special (laughs) and above average, and then you're going to succeed. And I'm like, "Mm, actually the science says like owning your average is way more effective in being successful and building a meaningful life. And so really digging into those platitudes, questioning them. And then to your point, sharing a a personal experience of kind of how, how, how I've experienced that on my journey. Yeah. Well, it's a fantastic book. I can't recommend it enough. And so, all right. So that, that is number five on my list. Liz, you you know, a lot of your books are kind of about bettering yourself, but from a lot of different angles, tell me about the number, what made kind of number five on your list. Okay. Number four. Oh, okay. Interesting. Well, I, I didn't rank mine in order. They, 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 okay? they, they, yeah, they, they can just be, you know, they, they if they all hold an equal spot in your heart, okay, you can do. choose which one. They do uh, for very different reasons. Yeah. Okay. okay. So I'm going to start with, and these again are, are my 2020. They didn't come out necessarily in 2020, but I read them in 2020. Okay. So how to be an anti-racist. Okay. Um, I thought was an incredibly helpful book for me in my journey of becoming an anti-racist spoiler alert. (laughs) Um, 
the main thesis of this book is that I'm not a racist isn't a thing. That you wake up every day and you either choose actively to perpetuate racism, primarily more honestly through systems and institutions than your individual personal actions, um, or you choose to actively dismantle or fight against it. Um, That there is no middle ground. There is no kind of neutral of just like, I'm I'm not a racist. Don't look at me. Um, that you're one or the other, you're either an anti-racist or you're, or you're a racist, racist. It's not something that you can be passive about. Yeah. But what I really appreciate about Ibram's take on it is it really does take some of the focus away from like naming and calling out individuals as racists. And that's the problem. And it really focuses on systems and institutions that of course were built by individuals. Um, but I think that's a much more helpful and constructive way to think about how we build an anti-racist society. Yeah. I don't think running around pointing fingers at, at like who's racist specifically today does nearly as much good as kind of taking a little bit of a step back and saying like, what are the systems that we've built? What are, what is the culture? What is the society? What are the institutions? How do they benefit a certain people group at the, you know, at the cost of another? And what do we do? to kind of change the tide. And so it was a framework for thinking about racism that I thought was really, really unique and really helpful. And I really recommend it to anybody who wants to be an anti-racist. Well, it's a, it's a great recommendation. And, and what I think is so interesting and you kind of touched on it is a lot of these type of books strike a really interesting balance where they want to challenge you and sort of convict you and make you sort of rejudicate your own values while also inspiring you to not be too down about your, your own kind of philosophy or kind of worldview but find a constructive way to move it forward. After reading How to Be an Anti-Racist, how have you kind of changed even, you know, because a lot of the, I feel like a lot of what makes these books so uh, impactful is they they not only challenge you intellectually, but they also kind of inspire behavioral changes. Yeah. After reading the book, how have you kind of changed, you know, maybe not day-to-day life, but certainly kind of behaviors that, you know, maybe contributed to uh, that false distinction between not being racist racist and being anti-racist. Yeah. I think for me, it's being quicker to ask the secondary Mm. question of like, what's the system behind this? What's the policy behind this? What's the people group that's benefiting from the Mm. way that this system or policy was set up from this specific narrative, kind of like peeling back the layer and asking the bigger question. And honestly, for me in my life, that's like a that doesn't stay in the just like ideological realm. It's like, that's a real question that I'm, you know, like asking myself about, you know, whether it's our government, whether it's my company, whether it's other organizations or companies, you know, that I support, um, whether it's like more informal kind of communities and institutions. And so for me, it really just like had me asking a new question in a new way. And I'll follow that up if I'm allowed to take the reins and move us on to book number two. Hey, do book number two. Um, with white supremacy and me. Hmm. Because I feel, this is a workbook. It's like a, oh, how many days? I can't remember. Um, maybe 30 days. I'll have to fact check that. But it's like a workbook that you go through consistently. You journal. I, I did it in a virtual book club with probably like 15 other people. So it was very... Um, 
immersive and like we talked about and she kind of shared really openly about our experience with every kind of concept and chapter. And I feel like those two books to me are the bookends that we need in our anti-racism journey, because I think Ibram does this amazing job of pointing to kind of broader, bigger systems and accountability on that side. And then what Layla does is she takes the whole focus and goes like, look at yourself, look at yourself, look at yourself, Mm -hmm. like look at your own heart, look at your own experience. And it's very introspective um, in a way that makes you realize, you know, and I think we're seeing this right now in current culture. It's like the U.S. Capitol was just like taken over by like, I saw someone on the internet refer to it as by the Duck Dynasty in a Chewbacca bikini. (laughs) And I felt like that was the best part of my day today was reading that description. So I'm going to reuse it. So our, you know, our political hub and capital was taken over by, I I would argue, radical, you know, white supremacists, probably Christian nationalists. Um, And I say Christian, of course, with some air quotes there. Um, And it's so easy for us as white people to go like, they're the crazy ones, right? Like, okay, but don't, you know, I even on my Instagram today had someone comment like, those are a few bad apples and don't lump us all in with a few bad apples. And I think that is such a common defensive reaction to seeing something as evil as, you know, like racism or nationalism manifest. It's so easy to point to whoever's just doing it more than you or worse than you. And to say like, they're the crazy ones. Don't, you know, don't lump us in a whole different way of thinking about that is like these people are actually just a really dramatic manifestation of this thing that is also inside of me. Yeah. And if I actually want society to change and if I actually want a better tomorrow, like I can't just sit around and point the finger at people that are doing it worse than me. Like I yeah. have to be brave enough to go like, okay, but how did that manifest in you yesterday? Yeah. Um, and it, of course not, you know, I'm like nowhere near, I'm like not running around doing things that it's like, oh, this was very overtly, you know, like racist or prejudiced or whatever it is. Um, but being really willing to kind of question those more subtle, subversive ways that racism and white supremacy, I think has taken, it's just like, that's, I, we had Latasha Morrison who wrote a book called, um, be the bridge, which is another yeah. book yeah. I would totally put on this list actually out um to portland in february to do like a whole day-long training with our um headquarters team and one of the phrases that she uses she was just like the the ocean that you grew up swimming in was one of white supremacy like there's Mm. a normalcy around it that we as white people have to understand um that it's like it probably wasn't even intentional right like uh, the ways and so many of the ways in which i've absorbed that and so what I love about Layla and me and white supremacy is her saying like, yeah, yeah, you can point the fingers, you can critique culture and systems and policies. But at the end of the day, you also have to be willing to have that same degree of critique towards yourself. Um, and that's why I think pairing those two, they kind of felt like, yeah, bookends to me, like two yeah. books that would go really well together because I think both of those sides of the spectrum uh, are really important. 
Those are those are fantastic choices, and I'm really I'm really glad. You know, and and you have really great insights about what makes them such interesting books. And you know, I think for for me, number four on on my list, it may be an odd sort of adjacent pick to that because I don't really feel like, I I recently reread uh, Malcolm Gladwell's Outliers, which mm-hmm. I remember reading back in the day. Back it came out in 2008. And I'm a big fan of Malcolm Gladwell, and I really do feel like there there are a handful of the books that you do feel sort of empowered after reading. And Outliers, the construct of that book is he wanted to look at people who are achieved high levels of success and what sets them apart from people who may not be as successful. And there are some interesting things uh, in the book. Like the book is most well known for like the 10,000 hour rule. Mm-hmm. Like if you work hard enough, long enough at something, then you you have a better chance of achieving your goal. But I think rereading this book 12 years after it came out the the main the, one of the takeaways wasn't hey if i work hard enough at something i will achieve a goal it's also it, the book really is an understanding of privilege and mm. you know not necessarily always racial privilege but i don't feel like some of the anecdotes he, he gives are that far removed you know intellectually from kind of drawing those lines so you know when he was looking at for an example an example of this is kind of reframing the the idea of privilege because there are a lot of people who that word has some degree of baggage because of like you said they grew up swimming in an ocean that that was was influenced by a lot of factors, and a lot of people may get defensive. I'm not saying that de- being defensive is justified, but I think we've all kind of encountered people who get defensive about the idea of yeah. privilege. Oh, um, yeah. But you know, one of the there, one of the interesting anecdotes in the book was uh, in, in Outliers was you know he looked at these hockey players who are at the, the the best hockey players in all of Canada, and he noticed that most of them were born in the first few months of the year. Oh, yeah, and and he, and, he, and, and he, in the book they started to unpack that, and what they determined is you know in Canada the youth hockey system it's based on uh, the year you were born. So whether you were born in January or December, you're going to play on the same team. Mm-hmm. But as you're a kid, I mean you have we, we both have children. We know the difference a year can make Huge. in athletic yeah. and intellectual development. Yeah. And what he found is that the kids who were born at the beginning of the year and had those sometimes, you know, 10 months yeah. uh, were 10 months older than kids on their own team because they were so they had the privilege of being born earlier that year. They had athletic development and intellectual development that drew more coaching attention mm. from the coaches. So by default, the kids who were born, who were just a little bit older, who just happened to be benefit benefited mm-hmm. from uh, being born earlier in the year, got more attention because they were the better athlete at the moment, and it became a self fulfilling so, prophecy. Yeah, yeah. And you know, but he also looked at people like Bill Gates. A lot of people don't know. Bill Gates' mother was an executive, uh, you know, it served on the executive board of IBM, mm-hmm. and he had access to computers at a really young age. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so, I remember that from the book, them talking about like him at a super young age when computers weren't accessible to the mm-hmm. main population that he was, you know, already out in his garage tinkering in a way yeah. that was, yeah, that was privilege. Mm-hmm. And, and so I, I think that there is a lot of interesting things that will inspire readers in, in outliers that, Hey, mm-hmm. there, a lot of it is hard work, but a lot of it is what he kind of classifies as a cumulative advantage. All of the things that you have in your life that, you know, kind of puts you in a position that other people don't have. And what I think is the most important takeaway from the book is, are we affording other people 
opportunities that they might not have that we've been born into uh, or, or have been given from whether it's kind of literal inheritance or we happen to be born in a certain country or, or look a certain way. And, you know, it's a really challenging book, but I think it's kind of an interesting sort of an adjacent book to, mm-hmm. to your two, not as directly. No, uh, I can see that. I'm glad you shared that perspective because I've read Outliers before and I and I really now I kind of want to reread it because it was a long time ago. But I think that that's a really interesting and I agree with that observation. And I think it also speaks to, we have a real false dichotomy in America where there's a lot of folks who have trouble um, acknowledging that privilege and hard work are actually not mutually exclusive. Yeah. Like, you know, my company is successful because frankly, I work my off and I spent many years I mean, you're living pl- out of my car. You are a plucking hard worker. I am. I am. I took immense risks. I worked super hard. I made no money for a really long time and had, you know, like lived with a degree of like, I did a lot of things that other people aren't willing to do. Also, I started out on freaking third base. Yeah. Like I'm, you know, and that's not to say that there aren't, especially as a woman in the business world, not, you know, certain um, things that I still uh, are a cost to me, but like I started out on third base and yeah. I'm a hundred percent okay with saying that, you know, like yeah. um, just based off the color of my skin, based off of the resources I had, the education, the stability, you know, even mm-hmm. though the a degree of stability, at least in my home growing up, There's all of these things that it's like, I didn't earn that. I didn't do that. I can't claim that. But so many people get so defensive and they feel like to acknowledge my privilege is to say that I didn't work hard. And it's that's such a westernized, like false dichotomy, linear way of thinking that it's like, it's one or the other. Either, you know, you were handed something and you didn't work hard or you worked super hard for everything you got and you can't acknowledge anything that you were given. Um, and it's just like, that's not real. Like nothing in life works that way. Like actually both of those things can totally coexist. And by acknowledging one, it doesn't actually like diminish or take away or deny the other. Yeah. Yeah. Those are really good, really good thoughts and, and really challenging books. And, and also they're really like interesting, fun kind of, I wouldn't say fun books to read, but ones that are very engaging for the reader, all of them, you know, I actually met Malcolm Gladwell on a plane last year. How I, I interviewed him one time, but I was it was over the phone, so I never. How was it meeting him on a plane? What was so what did you say? I'm like, well, you know this, and this is why when you reached out to ask about being on this podcast, I was like, I can't be on this podcast. I know nothing about pop culture. My yeah. pop culture, my level of ignorance around pop culture. You recognize Malcolm Gladwell is so, but I feel like he's not really pop culture. Like oh, when sure your most famous celebrity <laughs> is kind of like a pop sociologist, yeah. I don't know how much credit I get. Like when you can't recognize, you know, I can't even name a famous person to even finish that analogy. Yeah. But um, I definitely recognize Malcolm Gladwell. So we were seeing, I was actually on my book tour yeah. and he was on his book tour. And so you had an in. I had an in. So we were standing next to each other uh, on the jet bridge. And I was with my husband, Ben, who was on my book tour with me. And we both kind of looked at each other, you know, and I'm, I'm like an anti-talking to famous people. Yeah. Like I'm like, yeah, I'm not just going to walk up and like, I don't know. I just get, I'm not, I don't know. I'm weird about it. But, but with him, I felt, you know, I've read all of his books. Yeah. I think he's so interesting. And so we just striked up a little combo. We, we chatted until we both got in our respective 
lifts out of yeah. the airport and he was delightful oh, exactly that- as you would imagine like super um just like super engaging and generous yeah. and yeah, yeah it was fun yeah and, and always i always really interesting and the the other thing too that a lot of these a lot of these books like i said th- that appeal that appeal to me is they're anchored in anecdotes that they're able to match with research because sometimes you read some of these books that are just research heavy that are you're like dude give me the bullet points here man but when you hear a writer whether it's you know it, it malcolm there's a ton of writers who, who are able to do this michael lewis i feel like is another one who does it but you know is able to tell a story and then kind of bring in the research and then kind of do the takeaway like that that what's make it really compelling and and i think number three on my list is from a professor of psychology uh and it's called have you ever heard of a book called the how of happiness i haven't no okay so i i usually again i kind of have an aversion to like these oh this is how to be happy but this one is so research centric and also mm. has just so many interesting anecdotes and part of the research was they looked at identical twins that kind of went on to have different lives. And oh my gosh, I'm already super into this. My husband, when we were pregnant with our first child, yeah. he was like, I just, I'm praying it's not twins <sighs> because if we have twins, your temptation to do social experiments on them are going to be so high. <laughs> so- <laughs> well, the Lord has graced my children with being singletons so that I can't do my own social experiments. So you see if you can like turn one of them left-handed or something, you know, it's like just, ooh, I wonder. Well, but honestly, I mean, these were these most of this research was conducted reasonably ethically, but uh, I don't think it was one mom locking one kid in like a blue room and one in a red to see how that will affect. But they, the, the point of some of the research was to understand when it comes to the idea of happiness. So they came up with all these kind of measurables about how people, you know, right. feel and have their outlook on life, their worldview. And they came up with like a formula to measure happiness. But, you know, by looking at twins, they could really tr- sort of determine the nature versus nurture. Mm-hmm. So like genetically, some people are just more predisposed, you know, different brains are made different ways. But yeah. you know, with identical t- twins, a lot of them have pretty identical uh, biology and physiological, you know, physiological functions. And so what this author was able to determine from this research with identical twins, again, a strong antidote that's backed up by research is that about 50% of happiness is genetic is is mm. you're wired a certain way or genetically predisposed but the other 50 well actually so 10 is determined by uncontrollable life circumstances okay. so that could be, you know, location that you're born, the climate where you're born, y- y- your access to wealth. And, you know, so 10 percent is kind of there. It factors outside of your control. But 40 percent, according to this, you know, 20 years of research is within our control mm. where there are at least things that we can can do to affect happiness. The, the 50, you know, or that 60 percent is genetics and an environment, but 40, they actually broke down real practices and behaviors you can put mm. into to place to affect your overall happiness. So it really checked a lot of boxes for me. Interesting yeah. stories, a little, a little science, but th- th- like your book, some practical takeaways. And the cool thing was that, you know, th- this isn't a book written from a faith-based perspective, but obviously you and I both share, you know, the same values when it comes to faith. And a lot of them are, were pretty biblical ideas mm. that mm. are proven that if you want to control that 40%, the 40% that's when you're control, 
general, it's, you know, expressing gratitude. That was mm-hmm. number one on the list is verbalizing gratitude, learning to forgive. Forgiveness mm-hmm. is huge in, in, in happiness, avoiding overthinking and social comparison, mm-hmm. um, cultivating optimism, savoring life's joys, just being more present. If, if you're looking for a really great book about just the idea, of, not just the idea of happiness, because it's kind of a nebulous idea. And this book yeah. really kind of unpacks what makes us happy and what doesn't, but also how to be happier from a scientific perspective, not like a woo kind of self-helpy, you know, four point sermon distilled and, you know, overwritten into a 200 page book. The how of happiness is is really, really interesting. Wow. I'm totally going to read it. I love that. And I love that it sounds like each of those things are so accessible. To yeah. everybody. Yeah. And there are things that it's like it is. It's a matter of, of choosing and of having the discipline. Like I, I believe that happiness is a discipline. Like yeah. especially today with with the amount of stressors to our mental health that we can welcome in without any into our lives without any level of like discipline or skepticism is it's it just like takes being like I'm in charge of my brain. Yeah. And there are certain things that are out of my control, but there is a lot that I'm controlling what goes in, what comes out, how it affects me, yeah, my awareness. Um, and yeah, I think taking that level of ownership and responsibility, I think is really empowering. Yeah. And, and it's cool. You know, the book was originally called the 40% solution because like this mm-hmm. 40%, but one my, my favorite in sort of like the, the behavioral things you can do is happiness. Happy people frequently are involved in a big project that can be, you know, mm-hmm. you're building something, you're, you know, you're, you're heavily, inv- you're writing a book, you, you are tending a garden Pro- project based behaviors. Uh, according to the research, give people happiness, which isn't all that surprising because I feel like we're kind of wired to create, but really interesting book. So, all right, Liz, what is number three on your list? Okay. There's two different directions I could go in here with which one I talk about next. I think I'm going to talk about braving the wilderness. Okay. Um, I reread this in 2020, um, because it felt very apropos. I think I've been feeling a growing sense of ideological loneliness is Mm. probably how I would describe it. Um, And I think Brene Brown's book about kind of, you know, the title of the book is Braving the Wilderness. Like this idea that when you step outside of a known entity that is, um, you know, for your like ideological tribe, if you will, um, that that's a really scary, lonely place to be in. And it's why, a lot of people never do it because it's a lot safer to be kind of in the, um, in the safety of Mm. a group that all thinks the exact same about all of the same things. Um, and I think in our culture right now, what we're seeing is that those, they're getting so much further apart from one Mm. another, that the temptation and, uh, almost like the mandate to, to, to choose, like you have to belong in one of these camps. I actually just, um, was listening to, I haven't read Obama's um, latest book, The Promised Land yet, but I heard him on Brene's, um, Brene Brown's podcast. He kind of just like talks about this, this thing that has happened in American society where there really has been kind of this separation and filtering. Um, And I've felt that on a mental level, on an emotional level, I've felt a bit, I'm going to say, um, intellectually, like that my ability to be really intellectually honest and nuanced, um, 
it feels more difficult because mm. it feels like that pressure to like, you're, you know, you're getting judged on a tweet or yeah. you need to be able to sum up your views on this thing in a way that, um, is perfectly consistent yeah. with this, you know, with this group's way of thinking about that thing. Um, and braving the wilderness was really helpful for me and just kind of exploring that, acknowledging that, um, how difficult it is, but then also staying rooted in that journey and believing that, okay, there's other people that are on this journey, <laughs> that this ultimately is a good and worthy journey where I'm going to become mm. more of who I was created to be. Uh, you know, Brene Brown has a saying, I think it's like, uh, it, what is it? Strong hearts. Strong back, soft front. I should do more research before I'm on these podcasts. No, no, soft it's heart. But I really yeah. like that kind of concept of like being rooted and really strong with like, this is who I am and this is my belief, but also really open to changing and growing and kind of striking that balance between curiosity and rootedness. Um, I just found it really helpful as a leader, as a human in yeah. the world today. Uh, I really appreciate how um, research driven her work is is just like okay this is coming out of 20 years of yeah sociological like legitimate research um you know not just like someone running their mouth about what they what they think so yeah it was it was a big help to me this year yeah well it's so funny we did we we for so listeners know we did not compare lists beforehand but i have a Brene brown book on my list okay. as well um and what's interesting is you know uh you, you know your selection i feel like a lot of these can be i feel like Social media is sort of this huge, you can look at it, you can look at the data from it, you can just look anecdotally at it as sort of this huge psychological experiment because a lot of people just get unfiltered access to say whatever they want. Mm -hmm. And uh, the cool thing about Brene Brown is she is an academic. She is brilliant. These aren't just ideas that she has. She, she, she's able to back them up with research. And I feel like, the, you know, your selection really is an indictment on the echo chambers that mm -hmm. social media allows us to create, right? Mm -hmm. Like we can, we only have to listen to the voices that we want to listen to and we, and we can, we are fully equipped to empower confirmation bias at every turn where mm -hmm. we're only going to say things that we know are going to please a certain people for the sake of pleasing them mm -hmm. and not seek out uh, opinions that don't confirm our own biases. Mm -hmm. But it, the, you know, but the, my select, my Brene Brown selection too, I felt like also had a, a, a different indictment, but also on social media when you kind of reread it, because it was released in 2007. I thought it was just me. And the construct of this book is it's sort of a takedown of perfectionism. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's her look at the, the, the subtitle is telling the truth about perfectionism, inadequacy, and power. And the major takeaway, I don't want to give too much away of, of the the book because I, I do I feel like people can benefit from reading anything Brene Brown writes. But one of the really interesting takeaways from the book is that it's actually a misnomer that people are attracted to perfection. Um, you know, the research mm -hmm. points that we think that, you know, but in actuality, what people are actually attracted to, the people who have the most influence and, and hold the most, you know, power long term are ones who learn to embrace imperfections mm -hmm. and are able to use their own vulnerabilities and imperfections to demonstrate their humanity is mm -hmm. to show, hey, I have flaws like you. But she says perfection isn't what attracts people. It's people who radiate self self-acceptance, which Ooh. is a really interesting uh, distinction because mm -hmm. a lot of people think in order to accept myself, I have to be perfect. You know, that we mm -hmm. can, we, this is the Instagram filter era where if we want every image that we project of ourselves to be perfect, 
But really what people are looking for is self-acceptance. You know, with both, I, it's funny that themes are kind of emerging, like, you know, the idea of privilege in, in a couple of books, but the idea of like what the, you know, social media really accelerates the dark side of some of these human behaviors, but mm-hmm. Brain Brain does a really good job of kind of debunking them. Yeah, I love that. I love the idea that people are drawn so it's like, ultimately, we all want to be more accepting of ourselves. Yeah. I think about this documentary that I watched so long ago. I think it was like girls growing up in America and it maybe had a focus on like body image and eating disorders and kind of how rampant that is. And I remember so clearly this scene where this mom was like standing in front of a mirror critiquing herself. Mm. And then she turned around and told her, you know, you know, teenage or pre-teenage daughter, like, no, 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 you're fine. You're perfect. And, you know, you you're fine just the way you are and how empty that was. And it's like, Mm. of course your child, if they see you treating yourself and holding yourself to that standard, like your words of like, but you're okay. You're beautiful. You're perfect. How God made you are completely empty and meaningless. It's like, if you don't actually believe it for yourself, it's really hard for other people to get that message from you. Even if you're saying it like with your words. And I think about that a lot in leadership, but it's like, if one of my primary goals as a leader is, is, um, is for people to, to feel that sense of self-acceptance and, um, that like, I kind of have to do put in the hard work of like actually believing it for myself before I can help other people believe it for themselves. Yeah. And, And she goes as far as saying that vulnerabilities, not only are they not liabilities, you know, but vulnerabilities are actually assets because yeah. it expands your ability to relate to other people. You know, yeah. that's that's when you it's so inspiring when you see someone who's a great speaker, but also maybe struggle with something like a speech impediment, like stuttering or yeah. something, because it, it, you're not attracted to the perfection of the speech. You mm-hmm. know, a lot of people mm-hmm. you can watch a stage play and get good monologues, but to get the authenticity of someone working out their thoughts through quote unquote imperfection, it is inspiring and it kind of makes you relate and it's kind of empowering for, for kind of the average person. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. Wow. I didn't, I actually haven't even heard of that book of hers. It's really early on, but, but again, I, I revisited some of these like old books that I read in the, but just because the world's it's crazy how the world's evolved in like 15 years, like it is a different planet, you know, but, uh, but it makes some of these books about psychology and how we think about happiness and race and fulfillment and perfection, Mm -hmm. all that much more interesting because we can do it through the lens of, of social media. All right. No pressure, Liz. Uh, uh, I'll let you do. Do you want to do your number one first, or do you want me to to do mine? Okay, so I'm gonna. I'll, I will preface again by saying that mine was not values ranked. Yeah, yeah. Ne- neither are mine. These are they're arbitrary. Right. They're arbitrary. They're arbitrary. Yeah. But I yeah. did want to put something in there that was more because I believe all of these that I just named. Yeah, they're all they're all nonfiction, and I'm a huge. I read three times as much fiction as I okay. do now. For every for every nonfiction book, I try to read two. Or excuse me, yeah. For every nonfiction book, I try to read two fiction. Okay. I, because I, it's, it is my favorite way to consume art and yeah. like imagination. And so I read a lot of fiction and my favorite fiction from 2020, it's historical fiction, of course, but not, of course, I don't know how anybody would have known <laughs> well, that. Well, duh. Oh, <laughs> I read, I totally read non-historical <laughs> fiction as well. I read all kinds of fiction. This one happened to be historical fiction. Okay. Um, and it's called, it's probably going it, to, it's called the book of longings Okay. and it's by Sue Monk kid. And the premise of the book, get ready. I don't know your, I don't know your listenership. So I don't know. Some of them might need to gird their loins at this. Um, <laughs> they're, the, I, they, they're, they're generally pretty laid back. So okay. here we go. Yeah. The premise of the book is, um, 
is assuming that Jesus was married. Okay. And the protagonist, the main character in the book is Jesus's wife. Okay. And so it really centers around her story and her experience of a woman growing up in the time of Jesus and her relationship with Jesus as his wife. And then Jesus is a fundamental like character, but he's, he is really kind of tangential to her as the protagonist. And I loved this book. I was really like kind of scared when I like, because for your listeners that don't know me, I'm a follower of Jesus. My relationship with Jesus, I can say is like the most sacred, important part of my life. Yeah. And so I did feel a sense of kind of protectionism of like, I don't want to read something that's going to, I don't know, whatever. I can fully say that like, whether or not I agree with it or don't agree with it, it's fiction. That's like irrelevant. Yeah. Or whether or not I think Jesus was married or not. Here's the thing I will say about Sue Monk Kid is the woman researches. Yeah. Like, I learned so much about historical, cultural, societal norms that existed in Jesus's era, um, that, that growing up kind of hearing these stories from a new light that really does focus way more on Jesus's like humanity than divinity. But oh my gosh, I can truly say that I finished that book feeling more in love with Jesus recognizing that again, it's historical fiction. It does what all art does, right? It moves us in a way that whether or not it's, you know, true or false or whatever, like the point of art is that it, it makes us see a greater truth beyond whatever the words on the pages are. And I feel like I learned so much. I just loved it. I loved it. And I thought it was so brilliant to hear these stories that have become so, you know, them, you've heard them. And then all of a sudden it's like, you're looking at that same story from a totally different angle. Um, I just thought it was brilliant. I thought it was brilliant. I loved it and I would highly recommend it. That's awesome. So I, I'm curious, how how does it walk that line between like, because th- some faith adjacent fiction can be a little heavy handed, you know, I mean, e- even going like, I like C.S. Lewis next to the next person, but you know, I per, I'm I'm I know this is unpopular opinion. I feel like Narnia is a little on the nose. You know, it's like, oh wait, the lion's god. How did yeah, you're shaking? You're, it's, it's a children's even, book. I'm Liz, very, even when, even when I was on a kid, even when I was a kid, no. I was like, I get it. Oh wait, no. oh wait, Aslan's going the to die for them. <laughs> okay. Don't cross me. On okay, that I will. One. I will. Uh, that, that that was just uh, providing context for how much of the book is sort of an unpacking of this interesting kind of thought experiment, right? Like yeah. it's it's a fictional book. You know, according to the biblical narrative, you know, Jesus was unmarried when he, you know, ascended at 33. But how much of it is sort of interesting thought experiment versus metaphor for intimacy with with Jesus, if that makes sense? I think it's very heavy on the latter. Like, I don't know what I don't know if Sue Monk Kid's a Christian. Yeah. I think there are more. I read that book feeling more like there's Christians that would lose their minds over this. Yeah. than I did. It wasn't. I'm it wasn't Christian fiction. Yeah. It yeah. wasn't like the point of this is to make you feel a certain way about Jesus. It was, and her whole point, she has this really great epilogue. I think that's what it's called when it's after the book. Um, kind of talking about her process and the research process. And like, it's a thought experiment that it's yeah. like, actually, even biblically, if you just like look at the biblical text, she kind of lays out, we actually just don't know. And it wouldn't have been that weird. And let me give you the reasons why. Yeah. Jesus could have been married and it not have been mentioned in scripture because it it doesn't yeah. explicitly say that Jesus was unmarried. It doesn't mention that he was married. And those are two 
different things. We well, you know he loved um, weddings, <laughs> you know, like, yeah. like I'm not, I'm not being facetious. I'm saying like, literally weddings are a massive part of the biblical narrative. Now I'm not making a case that he was married, but I'm just sure. saying it's observable that the Bible yeah. has a lot to say about weddings. You yeah. Know? So her perspective is just like, there's a good chance he was, there's a good chance he wasn't. And I am in a historical fiction manner exploring using this as a literary kind of backdrop to explore what if he was. Yeah. And I feel like the way that she did it again made me like his relationship with his wife. I think about it a lot. You know, yeah. she was a very strong, opinionated woman who didn't necessarily fit in, you know, like with the kind of cultural context and norms. And his nickname for her was Little Thunder. And it was like something that he really like honored in her and um, like seeing Jesus more in the human light of kind of the, frankly, like in a lot of ways, I know this, these are two very loaded terms, but a radical feminist who saw mm. deep value in women and saw value in them beyond the places that society had kind of created for them to find their worthiness and value. Yeah. I thought it was beautiful. I yeah. loved it. Yeah. Well, but I don't think it, I don't think that was her point. I don't yeah. think if she comes from a religious Christian background and was trying to push that agenda, she left it very like, I left the book being like, I don't know where Sue Monk kid sits. I don't know if she has yeah. a personal faith, if she's just a great writer. So I would say it didn't feel on the nose to me because it yeah. left me with those questions. Yeah. Well, oh, I'm excited to read it because I need a palate cleanser after Narnia. I'm just saying, Liz. I just, Stop. I'm going <laughs> to hang up on you. No, no, I'm, I'm going to hang up on you. I love C.S. Lewis. I think he's brilliant. Okay. Uh, my final one, too, is it's not fiction, but it's more narrative than the other choices. It's actually a memoir. Um, have you ever heard of a book called The Diving Bell and the Butterfly? No. It was, it was written back in 1995. A couple of years later, I think they did a, mo a French movie adaptation. But it, it is written by a the former – he was a former editor-in-chief of the French version of Elle magazine. His mm. name was Jean-Dermic Bobby. And uh, what happened is, you know, he's kind of living this kind of high. He is exactly what you would picture the editor in chief of the French version of Elle magazine in the mid nineties to be like, like okay. imagine I like devil, him. imagine like devil wears Prada, but like, just like a, a laid back French dude, that's him, you know, kind okay. of really just a, a, someone who embraces life. Uh, well, <clears throat> he, he ends up having a brain aneurysm and loses functionality essentially loses all bodily functionality the only thing he wow. can move is his eyes wow. and so this book was his th his th physical kind of therapist like his, one of his nurses uh organized this chart of letters and he could blink and select each letter wow. and using blinking uh, he he actually wrote the 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 entire book. So the book took you know hundreds of thousands of blinks for one word, just to, to dictate one word. Blinking would take two minutes, and it's an entire massive book. Um, but it's one of the most inspiring books I think many people will ever read because wow. he basically you know this is a guy whose life was devoted to life. He just loved living life. And he made a decision shortly after this, you know, kind of just horrific medical incident to not let that stop him from 
really trying to live life, even if most of that life would have to be in his own mind and revisiting his memories, you know? Mm-hmm. I, I mean, and also it's it's a book about the power of the imagination. A lot mm-hmm. of his time was spent, you know, not necessarily like fantasizing about being a Formula One driver or a cyclist or a soldier, though he does, but it's also reflection on life and what has mm-hmm. been important to you and reflections on adventure. You know, he... You know, there's just the whole powerful stretch. You know, he food was a huge part of his life, but he lost the ability to taste and smell. And but he would have these elaborate meals in his mind and in his memory. And one of the things that I think is so cool about this book is I don't know about you. I, I know you are a very busy person, you know, like I mean, we've talked, you have a book, a podcast, a speaker, you run a company, you have a family, a, a husband and kids. It's really self-reflection, I feel like is one of kind of the great casualties of mm-hmm. the, our era, you know, mm-hmm. it's very rare that people just sit down and, th- and reflect, mm-hmm. yeah, you know, maybe when they lay in bed at night, but mm-hmm. even then so many people now have like apps that just, okay, now I'm going to trick my mind to go to sleep or whatever, it, because yeah. they're like, I got to optimize time. And I, and I think time optimization stuff can be really effective and, and cool, but books like the diving bell and the butterfly is like, Hey, Sometimes you need to be like, I just need to reflect. I need to think. I just need to be. And this book is a great reminder. Now, he does have some controversial thoughts. He does kind of let his mind wander. He's sort of a a libertine in a lot of his values, you know, but it's still one. It's a it's cool to read a book that was dictated by blinking. But two, it's a it's it's so interesting to hear an optimistic view of someone who knows one, he's going to die soon. And two, not letting some, not letting something just an unimaginable physical condition stop him from living life, even if he can't quote unquote live life. It's very inspiring and convicting and challenging, even just like not even knowing really what the book is about, but the circumstances in which it's written. I was just talking to a friend the other night and, you know, I've always been kind of hard on myself for, I think one of my one of, I I very regularly in my gratitude practice, you know, I've seen a lot of the world and I've seen a lot of the dark side of evil manifested and how that affects people. And I think it's like, there are not very many nights when I go to sleep or mornings when I wake up that my, my gratitude practice is pretty freaking simple. It's like, oh my God, gosh, I'm laying in a bed that's like warm and I'm laying next to a partner who respects me and I'm safe physically and emotionally. And I'm going to wake up and I'm going to walk into um, my bathroom and there's going to be freaking clean water that comes out of my sink. And I'm just turning on the faucet. And, you know, sometimes I can be a little bit hard on myself that I feel like I can shrug off dealing with hard things by comparing it to other people's heart and kind of being like, you know, well, get it, get yourself in check yeah. because like, this is what it could be. And then I was actually just talking to a friend two nights ago who had just read um, Cheryl Sandberg's um, book, Plan B, that's all about grief and tragedy yeah. because her husband tragically yeah. passed away. And I guess yeah. this is, yeah, yeah. And the, this is totally secondhand knowledge from my friend two nights ago. So feel free to fact check me. <laughs> um, but she was talking about how the psychologist that she paired up with, um, that they really actually kind of reaffirmed that, that they say that there's something actually quite psychologically healthy about acknowledging your own grief, loss, mm-hmm. whatever it is, not, not 
pushing it off or being guilty for feeling, you know, sad or frustrated, but also having a practice of perspective of being willing to put, um, yeah, it it felt surprising to me to hear a psychologist say that. Yeah. Um, and I think the analogy was for her because her husband passed away tragically. I think the psychologist friend said, imagine if your kids also passed in that accident. And to me, that feels so like you should never say that to somebody whose husband just died. Like, you should just sit with them in their grief. And I'm still kind of, ver- I'm verbally processing how I feel about yeah. all of it. But it was interesting to feel like maybe there is a degree of value in the mental practice of perspective. Yeah. Um, and I think it it can be overused probably. And I'm sure there's an underbelly to it. But to me, it was interesting to hear it also affirmed that it's like, yeah. actually, no, the science shows that that can be a really mentally healthy practice um, to engage in. Yeah. And, and and I think just, you know, the, the idea too, kind of speaking of gratitude is, is intentional reflection. You know, this, Mm -hmm. when you hear about someone who's kind of confinement led to them that he had nothing but his thoughts. Um, you know, I know you and I are both parents of young children and I think the main thing in my life that changed, well, I won't say the main, there's a lot of things that children will change in your life. But one of the things is I never used to look at pictures like, mm-hmm. you know, time hop and all of that, you know, like mm-hmm. I never break out a photo album. I never look back at pictures on my phone. I never uploaded anything. And so I didn't really care. Like I was on yeah. to the next thing. I didn't really have time. I look at pictures all the time now of my mm-hmm. kids, even if it's just, hey, remember how much fun it was two weekends ago when we totally. you know, play? I think when it comes to gratitude, perspective, you know, and, and giving yourself the space to, to, to kind of, um, you know, appreciate what you have, but also to, to your point, like be comfortable with, with things like grief and kind of understanding that good life is about understanding good and bad, but also the power of just being able to reflect and, and remember what was good and, and bring that back to the surface. I feel like is a very neglected exercise these days for, and I understand why, like I said, we're, we're in a busy culture, but, uh, but Liz, you had such, such, such great picks. I'm very inspired. I'm going to update my reading list and I want to encourage, yeah, yeah, that'd be really fun. I I want, I'd love to have you back on and I want, uh, listen, people need to check out beginners pluck and subscribe right now to plucking up and preemptively leave it an awesome review because it's an awesome podcast. Thank you, Jesse. Yeah, where our season two is going to kick off uh, in February. We've got an awesome lineup. I've already had some amazing interviews where we are kicking off the season with Ariana Huffington, who wow. just blew me away. This woman tells us about, she's got a story, y'all, um, that is not, yeah, it's, it was so inspiring. So I would love to connect with you yeah. over on Plucking Up uh, or through Beginner's Puck or through Seiko. Check out SeikoDesigns.com. S-S-E-K-O designs.com. If you're in the market for some ethically produced, beautiful women's fashion, which I know Jesse is all about. Listen, hey, those, I, there's some of the bags that are like, dude, I could totally rock those leather bags. It's like, dude, they're dope. And and, and it could be, hey, thank you. I got, I'm, 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 you know, I'm We also did, I don't know if you know this, we launched a coffee company under Seiko called Together Coffee. So if you're not into fashion, but you are into uh, fair trade, beautiful, small batch roasted, high-end specialty coffee, 
we, Done. we have something for you as well. Done. All right. Well, yeah, everyone check it out. Seiko Design, two S's in Seiko. Two S's. Yeah. Two yeah. S's. I wish I could go back and talk to... Uh, <laughs> Talk to Liz about 10 years ago about that one, but here we go. Hey, you can't live with regret, song. Liz. If anything, we learned from this list. You can't live with regret. You got to move on. You should be grateful that you got that second S. You know? That's why I named my children the most like boring, easy to spell, easy to say names that have been around since the beginning of history. I was Tough like, lessons I, already, learned. Yeah. I already went down the unique name road. We can we can do this yeah. differently. Well, Liz, All right. Thanks so much, Jesse. All right. Thanks, Liz. Bye-bye. All right, everyone, that is it for this episode of List It on the Ironclad Content Network. Hey, if you like the show, I know every podcast has to do it, but it really does help. If you like the show, leave a rating and review. I really appreciate it. All right, guys, we'll see you next time.